Hey guys, quick plug before we jump into today's episode. I'm going to be doing a short form improv performance and workshop uh, Friday, January 12th at 7 p.m. It's all pay what you can. It's the Mesa Arts Center. We're going to start off just playing some uh, games to get things going, and then we're going to invite people up for an open workshop. It's all designed towards people who have maybe never done improv before or maybe a little bit rusty with it. So it's all low stakes, just fun environment, no pressure for anything. If you're interested, definitely come check it out. should be a lot of fun. You can find the details at Laughing Pig Theater on Facebook or Instagram or laughingpigtheater.com. Now, on to the good part. I was speaking with two of the amazing people behind the Bridge Initiative, who are doing so much great work to promote women in theater in the Valley. I was speaking with Brenda Jean Foley, who's co-artistic director and co-founder of the Bridge Initiative, and Jamie Fox, who is board secretary and frequent contributor in pretty much any way possible, it seems. Uh, they were just such fun people to talk to, and had such exciting perspectives on the state of theater in our area and in the nation in general, and what steps they've taken so far, what steps we can all take to ensure a, a veritable surplus of opportunities for not only women, but all underrepresented groups in the future and uh, all of the artistic communities. So I'm, I'm really excited to be able to share this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Please pardon my voice. I was coming off of a cold, as I clearly still am, so I was a bit sultry on the recording, if you will. Uh, but if you can get past that, I think you'll really enjoy Brenda Jean Foley and Jamie Foxx. Starving Artist Phoenix. I'm Tony Machetti and I've got Brenda Jean Foley and Jamie Foxx with me. How are you guys doing? Great. We're doing great. <laughs> Fantastic. Glad we're all on the same page. <laughs> so I want to definitely try and avoid this being a Chris Farley show type interview. I, I looked into your your backgrounds and you have yeah. so much stuff between the two that I'm just really excited to just <laughs> so you're like, what was that like? What's that like? Yeah, yeah. So I'll try to make it a little more active than that for you guys. Okay. But just kind of starting off, I mean, in a kind of a general sense, why you guys why why do you did you personally feel like you wanted to be a part of an organization like the bridge well i actually started the bridge with tracy liz miller and the reason i started it was because she brought the idea to me and she said you know i feel as though we both of us were originally from new york for a long time and we both moved out here and she was looking around the landscape and she felt that there was not a lot of female voices represented on the stage she just felt that the women's women were kind of missing I mean they were on stage a little bit there were definitely some around but she just felt that and it's true everywhere you know we're not at gender parity so she said to me there's this thing called a art tank grant for seed funding for you know new ideas would you be up for it and I was like you know now that you mention it I didn't even think about it before and that's the weird thing about this thing of gender parity it's like if you're not thinking that way you don't see it because you're you're just kind of like going along and you're like I like this show and oh look at that great performance and what you know I love working this with this director and then you start to go oh my gosh all these playwrights are male and all these directors are male and as soon as someone says it it's yeah right and then right there in front of you yeah it, 
once you see it, you can't unsee it. So then, then she started, you know, explaining to me because she'd done some work with the Women's Project in New York City, and you know they have much more national numbers and all that stuff. And we started looking at local numbers, and of course. Phoenix is not better than New York. Um, and so we just thought, you know, there's a need out there. There's so many talented people in the Valley and so many talented women. And we just wanted to provide opportunities. And I just, after so many years in New York, I just kind of realized, like, I like to create work. I don't like to sit back and w- wait for the phone to ring because that doesn't always work. <laughs> You're waiting and waiting and waiting for somebody else in order to do what you love. And so at a certain point, I was like, yeah, I'm all, I'm all for let's create some stuff. And I got involved, I don't know, maybe two-ish years ago. They needed an, another actress for their staged reading where they did a gender bending, remind me, Richard the Second. And I was like, this is great. And it was a couple days with a group of actors and Brenda and Tracy and kind of just working through, it was a complete gender reversal. Every male role was now female, every female role was now male. And I just went, I like what they're doing. And so I just kind of tagged along to a couple things and then I started taking notes at meetings and then it was like, why don't you be the secretary? And I was like, yeah. Because you kind of are. Yeah, right? I was like, all right, yeah. And I just wanted to be involved with this work because of there not being this gender parity in so many levels, not just in theater, as we all know, but it just, I just was really drawn to it and really believe in putting the female-focused work on stage that The Bridge does. Awesome. Now to go off on a quick tangent, so I, I saw the, the Richard II kind of record of it, and it's it did kind of strike me as interesting that you guys did a, a complete gender reversal instead of maybe, say, like an all-female cast. So what was the thinking behind that? Was that a really kind of conscious decision, like we still want them in, but in the female roles? Well, I don't want to speak for Ketta Carpenter, because it was her idea. She brought it to us. But my understanding from her was that you know, that people often do the full female reversal, and that wasn't what she was interested in. Partly, <laughs> I think so the men could understand what women go through. Mm-hmm. It was very fascinating for Randy Messersmith and who else is it? Tyler Eglin. Yeah. For, to, for them to play the queens and just sort of like, you know, oh, I, I so miss my husband away from the war. You know, like they had to step into that and go, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. this is what you guys have to deal with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and for them it was eye opening too. And I, I think part of part of Keta's mission, and again, I hate to speak for her and put words in her mouth, but I believe that what she was trying to do was educational. I I love that. And I, I was kind of hoping that's what you were going to say, because yeah. I think that's really fascinating. And I mean, from somebody who's, I know that, you know, you're a writer as well, and you guys have both kind of been, that kind of leads on some projects, that, that whole idea of trying to find pieces for women to like even audition with and stuff like that. It's so mm-hmm. frustrating because all the content is the same. You don't really get anything really meaty to grab onto. Right. And I know that Keta and Marin and other people that were involved with that project, Caitlin O'Neill, teach Shakespeare. Right. And one of their missions is for people doing auditions to open themselves up and and for the girls to tackle Romeo or to tackle Tybalt or to tackle King John or whoever, you know, one of these male roles because it might bring out a different aspect of their personality. Now, to go back a little bit more into you guys personally, so, I mean, you guys were both already, you know, performers for quite some time before tackling this. I'd I'd love to talk a little bit about your experiences personally dealing with this, you know, even if it was just in retrospect. Is there anything that kind of stuck out, you know, over the course of your careers that really hits home now that you're in a situation like this? 
That's a tough one. <laughs> I will say, I think it was for me for many, many years more subconscious. Mm. I definitely went through my 20s. I don't want to say not liking women, but I think that I was mistrustful and I was always competing with other women and I had this, like, I always had my guard up and it actually makes me really sad thinking back. But I would go to these chorus calls in New York and there were 300 people that looked like me, that sang like me, that were wearing floral dresses and I chose not to wear floral dresses for that reason. (laughs) But, uh, you know, and consequently, uh, nobody knew what to do with me because I didn't fit in the box. But I think that we are kind of set up as women to compete with each other and to think of each other as competition, not only for roles, but for men but for I mean other jobs and it's gross and I think that becoming more aware in this way that we can empower each other we can be there for each other we can create this sisterhood and this friendship and now I'm at the point that instead of being upset when one of my friends gets a role I'm excited and happy for her you know it's like yes you got it maybe I didn't but awesome for you so I think I don't know if that really answers your question but I definitely think that there was a scarcity that we were kind of fed into of like there's you know, supply and demand. There were way too many women for way too few projects and it was unhealthy. And so I think that as I've evolved as a human being, I'm proud to say that I don't feel that way anymore. And I want to be part of the solution of eliminating that scarcity aspect of it. Yeah. I think similarly, you know, I would go into these auditions or I would not, or I'd talk myself out of auditions a lot in my twenties of oh, I don't fit that, or I'm not this. You know, it took me a while to kind of own who I was and what my type is. And then it kind of morphed from that into wanting to be in the room where we make these decisions, where we say, what are we going to do and how are we going to do it to kind of be the vessel to um, help other women get involved in this type of work. Now, when you're taking on a role like that where you are consciously saying, I'm stepping away from the spotlight myself in order to give other people an opportunity, is that a difficult thing to do? I mean, there is a certain amount of, you know, wanting to perform still. You're still an actress, you know. How does that work for you? I think for me, it definitely, you're right, there's a balance. If I couldn't do it at all, I would be diff- I would definitely be sad. <laughs> but again, it's this idea of abundance, not scarcity. And I also feel as though empowering others allows them to want to empower me and it's all about you know creating a network and creating we were talking the other day at one of our meetings about this idea of a repertory company those don't those exist in Europe they don't exist so specifically here but we love that idea of you know having artists that you know work together a lot and you understand each other's rhythms and you you know you kind of come into day one with a common vocabulary a shared mission and so I think that being able to assume different roles also has made me a stronger actress frankly because being on the other side of the table watching auditions you learn so much everybody always says that but it's true but I I, I do think that it doesn't exclude my performing life and has only enriched it yeah I mean I would I would definitely agree with that because there's a certain kind of empowerment that goes along with sharing that power with others with building others up and yeah the growth that I have experienced just being you know in these boardrooms and just networking with all the other artists and and making the little waves at the bridge I feel like is really making I have people who are like so I hear you're involved with this company and they do monthly readings 
written by women? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> also free, you know, <laughs> like, believe it or right. not. <laughs> so on the flip side of that too, what do you think your backgrounds in performance have brought to your current positions? Well, it sounds like I'm tuning my own horn, but to a certain degree, I established my reputation as an actress. And so I think one of the reasons that Bridge took off so quickly was because we was because Tracy and I both were professionally established and our reputations were good as artists. So if I'd been a really crappy actress and had done terrible stuff, I don't think Bridge would have taken off as quickly. You know what I mean? I think people had seen some of the work that I'd done and were like, oh, she's somebody I might want to be associated with artistically. And suddenly with a garbage truck driving through, I forget the question. What was the question? <laughs> Just what, what you feel like your, your performance background has brought to the, the situation. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I think, honestly, I think it brought a reputation and a requirement of quality. Honestly, one of the things that we've been trying to establish from the beginning is a level of professionalism and a level of quality because what's difficult here in Phoenix, it's so unlike any other market that I can think of community theater, professional theater, these sort of semi-professional independent theaters, which is more like what the bridge is, they all kind of, we, we all pull from the same pool, we all do sometimes even similar work, and so I think it's very confusing for the audience, and how do you differentiate yourself, and so I think, to go back to your question about my background, I think me being who I am, having done the work that I've done, attracts a certain level of professionalism, and also I require it. Yeah, absolutely. And I've been in, you know, the theater community here for about 20 years. And so I have the networking and relationships with people and kind of knowledge of how the theater scene has ebbed and flowed over the years with companies opening and companies closing. And so I have, you know, that experience along with my performance. Institutional knowledge and that it's totally... There's nothing, you, you can't buy it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I'm glad you guys brought that up as well because it is something I was kind of thinking about and that you guys were established members of the community and I think that obviously did help the situation a lot. You know, if, if someone were to try and get into an organization like this, someone were to try and create an organization like this who maybe didn't have that behind them, I mean, what, what do you feel like the extra struggles would be? Do you think that would be successful or do you think they would need to hold off? I think you're asking two questions. One would be how to become involved with our organization and one would be how to start your own. <laughs> in terms of becoming involved with ours, I think it's showing up and finding out what we do. You know, at this point for our readings, we haven't been holding auditions necessarily because we are drawing from the pool of people that we know. But that being said, people who are coming to our readings, people who are attending our galas and, you know, see what we do, we sort of trust them more that they're like, oh, okay, they've seen a reading, they know what we're doing as opposed to, you know, us cold calling people. So I would say if you're interested in us, come find out what we're doing. Don't just sort of read our posts, show up. But then in terms of starting something new, it depends on your goals. If you're looking to establish yourself professionally, it's different from establishing yourself non-professionally. It depends on if you're a trust fund baby and you have <laughs> thousands of dollars yourself or if you're trying to raise money. It depends on what level you want to produce at. What we're finding is that there are spaces in town who are looking for content. And my husband's in the middle of trying to create a vaudeville a series. And then he's in touch with different places who are interested in that. Like there's definitely venues. So it, again, it, as an artist, you kind of have to become clear on what your mission is. And I think that's what been one, one of the great things about Bridge is from the beginning, it's been so clear about empowering women. And I do want to say 
upfront, that does not mean disempowering men. Yeah, of course. Yeah, sure. Well, yeah. honestly, though, a lot of men feel that way. I have literally walked up to an actor after a production and said, you're amazing. I have a theater company, handed him their, my card. He's read it, said women in theater and said, this isn't for me. And it just shocks me because the truth of the matter is we want to be inclusive, not exclusive. And again, 50-50 would be the, the goal of you know, the universe. But mm-hmm. since it's not, you know, we're trying to maybe stack the deck a little more heavily toward women, but we love men too. <laughs> well, I think that's very telling of the situation and, and how all men across the board subconsciously are aware of it in that their first instinct is that the roles are going to be reversed, which is obviously to put them in an inferior position, which is acknowledging that you are in an inferior position and they know it and they don't want to be there. Right, it's the whole idea of privilege that has been talked about a lot. Yeah, and I think the skewed view of power as well, where we see it as power over others instead of the sharing of power, because there is enough to go around. (laughs) Yeah, so in terms of starting something, I think you, again, you want to know what you're passionate about. We're passionate about, you know, empowering women, but what is it you're passionate about? What is it that you can tackle that is not going to kill you? Because when Tracy and I started this, we did what we called a little symposium. We, we got this seed funding grant and we had about three weeks of programming. And we asked for help, and at that point, again, we weren't quite established yet, and some people came in to help us, and others said they would, and they fell away, and we ended up leaving that experience going, wow, that was amazing, and I don't think we can ever do it again because we're exhausted, and we feel like we've been run out of a tank. <laughs> so bite off something that you can chew. Start small. Don't shoot the moon. Build your audience. Build, And again... For me, it all goes back to quality. If what you're doing is good, you're going to find people come to you. You're going to find people find you. And I mean, you asked about if you don't have a reputation, you kind of do have to work to build one. There's no shortcut. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with that. I think, you know, as Brenda has mentioned, part of the success is that they are established actors and professionals and people are attracted to that. Well, and also we've attracted other professionals like Jamie to us for that reason, because, you know, they they looked at us and said, okay, there's going to be a quality that that I can trust. There's going to be a level of professionalism. My time is not going to be wasted. And and I know that the product is going to be something I'm proud of. I think that kind of comes into a subtextual question I had with that, too, which is a question that comes up a lot on on my podcast. Some I'm very interested in is just how do you know when you are in a position to start something like this? How do you know when you're at a level of reputation that you can bring others into you? I mean, is there a flip that got switched for you? Was there a moment that you realized it or was it something gradual? For Tracy and I, it was going to pitch and standing in front of a room of, I don't know, several hundred people at Chandler Center for the Arts and saying we had think we had six minutes and a little timer literally right in front of us on the floor counting down and I think it we I think we were like at 559 we were like yes we got it all in but you know we were standing in front of these hundreds of people and we did not know whether or not we would be granted any money because we were pitching against child's play and mim and you know dance ensembles that and orchestras and things that were established companies and organizations and there were only three awards and we ended up getting one and so we were like okay, I guess they want what we have to offer. So for us, it was literally that, that suddenly we had this endorsement and we had this money, and so we had to do something with it. In terms of a more sort of like zen, introspective, internal, like, now I am ready, like the universe is open to me and what I have to say, I did not ever have that epiphany moment. I started a company in New York years ago, I think it was like 2007. Is that cockeyed optimist? (laughs) 
Yes, that's right. The cockeyed optimist. And again, that was sort of out of a, just for me, it was a need to create. And it was less about the universe is ready for what I have to give necessarily than I have this thing that needs to find an expression. And it was a need of my own. And we held auditions and all these great people showed up. And so again, people were drawn to it and what we were doing. And it sort of became this thing too. So I, I think sometimes you kind of have to throw things out there and see, throw this get against the wall and see what sticks and be brave and know that if it fails, you tried. <laughs> what about for you? I mean, how did, how did you know you were at a position where you had something to offer? I think it was, you know, just my initial attraction to what the, the bridge's mission and what they were doing. And at that point I had, I don't know, maybe like seven years with Child's Play as administration and kind of seen the ins and outs of, of how a theater company like that runs. And I was like, look, I don't have all of the experience, but I have a lot of knowledge and I'd be happy to share. I just really wanted to be involved. And I feel like my, you know, what we talked about, like I'd been in this community for a while and I'd been with a theater company, a successful theater company for a while. So what does that mean and what can I bring to this to help them grow even further? Well, and Jamie's been amazing over the last six months. I, every time I look at her Facebook posts or her Instagram feed, she is at another conference. She's doing all this education, trying to learn about the nonprofit sector and so it's finding your passion and following and going, you know what, I'm not going to wait for somebody, again, to, to call me. I'm going to be proactive. And it's just been inspiring to watch her. And on that note, too, so I, I saw that you, you did do the, the recent conference for the nonprofit, women in nonprofits, yeah, that yeah. only 50 people did. That was pretty awesome. Um, and you also do, you help out Will Hightower with his theater think tank project and yeah, stuff, right, as yeah. well. So how do you guys approach, I guess, networking at this point, you know, while you do have this focus on this one organization, how do you kind of manage your time with, with helping out other organizations? You know, that's an excellent question. <laughs> Some of it is I have an hour here, an hour there, and, you know, you just kind of make do. And if I'm up at 2 a.m. and I can't sleep, sometimes I'm like, here are my ideas. Here, there are all this random stuff. Here. And it just kind of happens. What We have our gala coming up on February 24th. I, I chair it. I should know this. <laughs> and as I, I just started a new position and we're doing a lot of events and something came up through one of their events and I kind of just messaged the whole board and was like, okay, what do you guys think about this? I think we should do it and I think we need to make a decision like right now so we can get it done. And, you know. And then I think part of my real question here is as well as why. Why do you feel like that's still an important thing to do to be active in these other roles as well? And what do you feel like the value is there? Well, I mean, as Jamie was starting to say, we... We're, I don't want to say we're spread thin, but we are trying to um, to get out there and to pull ideas from as many other people as we can. And oh my gosh, there's not a scarcity of ideas in this town. And Will Hightower is an amazing, amazing human being for that reason. He is trying to sort of collate them all in one little <laughs> think tank, which is incredible. And I think that the more people you can draw ideas from, the stronger you'll be. And, and the more, I mean, obviously we're looking for an audience space. So part of networking and looking for a donor base and, and it's getting people excited about what we're doing getting audiences to come see what we're doing so it's all important you can't sort of sit behind your computer and honestly I'm terrible at this Tracy's much better face for the organization than I am we you know I am happy to sort of like go into my little corner and be stuck to the wall as a little wallflower but you know I can't 
I have to get myself out there a little bit more and I have to meet people and, and you know, be a face and a voice for the organization because that's how we're going to grow. That's how we're going to advance. Otherwise, we'll just kind of continue to do great work that nobody sees. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think it's also like sharing that wealth. You know, there's a lot of similar theater companies that are doing, you know, different work like AC theater company and things like that and you know however we can help each other I think grows this theater community even more which is incredibly important to keep it sustaining that's an interesting thing that I think is is really prevalent in our community that is kind of surprising it seems like it almost shouldn't be is the the amount of unity and the amount of really just talent sharing that goes on that you would expect that there would be a, a higher level of competition between theater organizations but it just it doesn't happen everyone loves each other and it, it all comes together what, what do you think that is why do you think that stands you know true of the artistic community not so much others well you know it's interesting because that's an awesome perspective on it because I've heard so often the opposite. I've heard a lot of people go, oh my gosh, nobody wants to release their season and that's why there's 12 Annies going on at the same time. And, you know, this theater's outbidding this other theater for this show and this one's holding the rights and then other people... Like, I've just heard a lot more of the other side of it. So it's great that your perspective is that people are working together because I think that there's... I think the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. I aspire to what's going on in the DC theater community, which is that they have an amazing array of theaters in the DC Baltimore area and that probably 70 theaters a lot of them union theaters professional theaters and the heads of seven or eight of the major theaters get together if it's not once a month it's at least once a quarter to just talk about art to talk about audience development to talk about things and to net, to give each other ideas and they work together to create cross promotional ideas they had a i think it was 2000 because I, I was on a panel about it yeah. at a same conference. They had a women's, I forget the name of it, but basically it was two weeks where every theater, 70 theaters were producing work by women. And you could kind of get a pass and go to different theaters and check them out. And the amount of infrastructure that required, the amount of planning, the amount of working together and collaboration is stunning. And I just, because we talked about trying to do that here and it was like, who would jump like nobody's gonna be part of that who would do you know and I think I'm hoping that's changing I'm feeling like we talked about it a couple years ago and everybody's like no way and now I'm thinking well maybe there's a chance of you know like saying okay October's women's month and you can go to Stray Cat and you can see it's play by women and you can go to bridge and you can do you know but I don't know I don't know if we're there yet I think in terms of the artists people respect each other's work people want to work together I do think that there's again these different levels so there's the community theater level and then there's sort of the semi-professional and the professional and Again, people cross those levels. I'm still trying to figure out how it all works. But I do think it has to come from a place of respect. And if collaboration is going to happen, which is what you're perceiving, I think that's where it comes from is that people just want to work together. And it may just be that in our market there isn't necessarily a huge professional level there that not. tier is not yeah not really existent that much so nope. maybe the perception is coming from the idea that you kind of just have to go everywhere mm-hmm. you know if you're going to be you know eking out a living at all you you have to work with every theater you can and i think maybe that kind of breaks down the barriers a little bit and just Absolutely. that everyone's kind of aware of that so it could be it but that also i guess maybe i'm just naive <laughs> maybe i'm not seeing <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm hopeful that the fact that people can cross those boundaries, I'm actually going to be working for Arizona Theatre Company finally this spring in a big equity contract, which is amazing. And so I've sort of jumped into that pool. 
suddenly, but after having worked in the semi-pro and the community levels. And I hope that it doesn't suddenly exclude me from other things, you know. But I think that, again, it all comes from this idea of wanting to work together and wanting to build community. Yes, all of that. <laughs> now, there is one thing I kind of want to direct more towards you because I guess this is for both of you all, but from somebody who is also part of another underrepresented group, your background, I mean, how how do you approach that and how do you feel like you, you are responsible for kind of helping make changes within an organization like this to add opportunities not just for women but for women of other groups? Yeah, you know, I think it's important and I think in the world right now we're seeing that a lot. I was scrolling through my Facebook feed today, <laughs> as we all do, and, you know, the bachelor contestants whatever oh all the, and they're yeah. all blonde blue really? yeah, all blonde, blonde women and two of them <laughs> even had two of them even named Lauren and it's yeah. so bad that makes me laugh so much <laughs> and you know and it's all these and the more you look at ads and you're like oh lots of white women oh, oh more white women I opened up my mouth some local film company god bless them is doing like a film that's actually professional paying people and they put yeah yeah look at our cast and it was literally nine men I think all of them were white except maybe one looked like maybe he was Italian and maybe there was some Hispanic in there, but I don't know. And then one girl, and it was like, you know, the, this little group of teenage kids, and she, she was like the token girl. And I literally, like, I opened my mouth I'm like on Facebook, and I'm like, congratulations on being part of the trend, because that I linked, <laughs> that I linked to an article that was talking about the fact that there's all these action movies with all these boys and the token girl who's barely wearing any clothes. And it's just, it's kind of everywhere, and it's in your face. And then I got, you know, then they they jump on and they say well you know our crew has female people and this is a story about and I was like that's fine I just wanted you to be aware that that's what it looks like like Mm -hmm. it just it smacks you in the face and again once you start to become aware that's all you see everywhere on The Bachelor I mean it's just so out there I mean everywhere you look you know and I can I'm essentially white (laughs) I never never ever does my agent call me out on some when I go to a room it's all ethnic looking people and I am every single time my audition notices are for ethnically ambiguous people and that is what I get called out on and it's usually like a Peter Piper pizza ad and it's all people of color And and, and you probably, I don't know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I had a girlfriend in in New York who is half Chinese, half Norwegian. And for her, it was kind of a curse because at the time it was like she was not white enough to be white and she was not Asian enough to be Asian because her hair was more light brown actually than black. And she didn't have quite, her eyes weren't quite maybe as slanty as like another Chinese. As much as they wanted to be. Right, exactly. (laughs) And she was, okay, I'm not in any box right now. You know, this ethnically ambiguous thing actually didn't exist back then, like 15 years ago in New York City but at the time it was like I'm not ethnic enough but I you know like I would imagine that would be a problem that you might hit oh absolutely and I will say gosh I want to I don't know maybe like 15 years ago they were doing Steel Magnolias Mm -hmm. and I was up for the Shelby Shelby, and you know and they found someone who would look like my mom and you know I did I did my best but you know what do people think of it's not it's not someone with dark curly hair and tan skin Right, but you know. <laughs> and I mean, what just the idea that you just don't look at a casting board that much and and see calls for Israeli American women like that just isn't a, a group that people think of even when they're looking to be progressive, right. they aren't looking at that group. So I mean, what steps do you guys feel like you need to take in order to reconcile that? Well, again, it's one of the things. I mean, it, we brought it up when you're talking about the Shakespeare thing. I think that the more we can try to put 
untraditional looking people. But it's interesting because we had this conversation, plays now, we're mostly looking at contemporary plays. Playwrights are writing very specifically ethnically now. Mm -hmm. And so we have a woman on our board who's Muslim and she does wear her shawl and she's amazing and she's actually doing Romeo and Juliet right now which I think is phenomenal but the plays that we're looking at a lot of the times for Brid I mean we're doing one that she's going to be doing that she's playing a Pakistani character we just did one that was three French women and a black woman and we couldn't necessarily cast her in that because like it was the playwright so specifically had these three white girls and this black girl and if you shuffle that around too much it dilutes what the playwright's trying to say so it's we're trying to pick material that is broad and that we're you know encompassing a lot of groups for that reason because we think it's important that they're represented on stage and also if there's ever any opening like we have a clerk or something like in a film like that does not need to be a male you know that that could be a woman and that could be a woman with Mm -hmm. her scarf on that could be you know like that could be an Israeli American Mm -hmm. like if we have any option to open it up we try to yeah, and I think like you're saying, like ethnically, the term ethnically ambiguous did not exist, you know, 10, 15 years ago, but now it's hip and it's it's what people want. And I will ride that wave <laughs> wherever it takes me. Um, but I think it's important, you know, and as we're reading, you know, these newer scripts and, and with the characters that people are writing now, it's incorporating all of that. Yeah, last year for our contest, we had one of our honorable mention scripts. I I'm in love with and we still have not been able to pull together a reading because it is six Asian women but beyond that there's like you know there's one from Singapore who needs to have a British accent because she was educated in British films and there's one from Thailand who you know has a Thai accent and then there's one from Japan and like it's so specific in terms of the casting and I know that all of us in Phoenix probably aren't going to stand and look at a group of Asian women and go, oh, you're Korean and you're this and you're that. But in terms of what the playwright was requesting with the accents and the background and whatever, like, we don't have the talent pool here to do it. And it's killing me because I want to see this play. It's so good. Well, that's that's an interesting thing, too, is that, I mean, I've seen some other theater companies in town who have trouble because of that talent pool issue with stuff that they want to do, and sometimes they go ahead and cast someone ethnically ambiguous for that, or sometimes they cast someone who's Asian but not from the right country and stuff, so... They, they sometimes still get the backlash for that, even yep. if they're trying to get that. Phoenix Theater had it last year. Yeah, with Pasha, yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm kind of curious, What do you think there's any responsibility for the performer to maybe not pursue that role if they feel like it's not um, you know, the the right type for them? I, I know there's got to be a balance. I want to get cast. This is as close mm-hmm. as I'll get. And it's still not quite right. Uh, yes, and it's such a fine line, yeah. I think. Well, the other difficult thing is like, as if you're sitting on the other side of the table, you can't ask. It's illegal mm. to say. I mean, we just, the, the play that we're reading on Monday, um, ideally is looking for a Native American, part Native American character. And so we held some auditions, but we couldn't literally ask these people, right. do you have Native American blood in you? <laughs> you know, that, that you, you can't do that. And so, um, yes, theater is a representative art. That being said, I, I was very much against casting an Italian person who happened to have you know olive colored skin because to me that's a white person and this role is not a white person role you know what I mean so it's a fine line yeah I um I feel like that even beyond that though there's um I mean the last interview that I did the person was talking a lot about um plus size actresses and just kind of that kind of being the last bastion of underrepresentation because even if you see like you see the uh 
the Romeo and Juliet's that uh, Nearly Naked did like a while ago. That's just two men and stuff like that. You still see all these different variations of it, but you just don't see a lot of call for yeah for plus sized women and so I'm wondering like how do you guys try to approach something like that is that something you're actively thinking about or well definitely um we did a whole festival the 9th and 10th I believe of September and we definitely had some women in that in our cast I wouldn't call them large I mean I don't know would you what's not the standard yeah not like little sticks yeah yeah Yeah, we had some some women with some curves and it was awesome and some women who were six foot tall Mm -hmm. some just presence you know um and different body types and honestly it's been one of the things that we've been looking at in our readings okay well we've got three white women but we don't want three white women that look the same like let's try and get some different differentiation in their body types not just hair colors and ages and in terms of the plays again that we're looking forward to program like we've got a play coming up in March that is two it's a two character and both of them are supposed to be in their 40s to 60s so that's that's another I mean you say that you say plus size is the last bastion but like honestly ageism is really really bad and I'm gonna throw one other thing in there and that is ability level and disability yeah that's true because that is another thing you know uh, unless it's written in that they are in a wheelchair or they are deaf or they're blind we're not seeing those actors represented on stage yeah and we actually had a gender fluid I guess he termed himself I'm gonna say it wrong but an individual who came I said himself, which is wrong, their self, <laughs> came to our auditions, and we were thrilled, and we used this individual in a couple different pieces in September, because it felt like such a great opportunity to once again say, like, why does this character have to be male or female, or why does this, you know, let's use a human being up on that stage who's going to give a phenomenal performance, which th- this person is, the I think, the one person who made me literally cry in the auditions. <laughs> a great actor. So do you think the onus needs to fall on um, playwrights to write in more parts specifically for that? Like you said, that the trend has been doing with race. Do you think people need to be writing, you know, 55 years old plus size, you know, into their, their character descriptions? Well, yes. I think again. I I feel like the more that I'm reading, the more they are. Um, they are being very specific with their character descriptions. The difficulty on the playwright side is that they want to get produced. So you know, again, it's this perception of what audiences are going to want. You know, and so we've got to start training the audiences to to go to things that maybe are, they haven't heard of, and we've got to be programming it. And I'm I'm already reading plays to look at for our, our reading series next year. And yeah, there's a playwright that's out of. I think San Francisco that I've been reading a few and they that person is very interested in the trans world and and there's a couple plays that are really interesting there but yeah so I think the truth is they are doing it we're just not seeing it especially not in Phoenix so um you know like here um Stray Cat did that last year that was a, a, a transgender play and you know it's starting but we also have to dig a little deeper to find those plays and I think it's important to do that work. Yeah, and I think like you said, it's training our audiences too to accepting what they're seeing on stage and who they're seeing on stage. Now, if I can kind of read something back to you too, there was a, a, a quote from the value section of your uh, your website that I thought was really cool and I think kind of speaks to this a little bit. We said one of your values is to remain open to unanticipated projects that will widen our inclusivity and reach. Can you just elaborate on that? What you're trying to do with that? The reason we put that in there is because that has been happening. We've been mentioning this production with Ketta. It was actually Ketta Carpenter's brainchild. She has this troupe, I guess, called the Miss 
Misconceived <laughs> Shakespeare. Misconceived Shakespeare. Um, and she brought that to us, and it just fell into our lap. We also had a production last year that was produced and presented at a um, palliative care conference. And that playwright, once again, she was from Baltimore. She found us. It fell into our lap. You know, these experiences with you, like having these conversations where we've been asked to speak on panels nationally at different conferences and things. And part of our mission, again, is to try and be open to those. That's one of the reasons we're called the initiative, not an or like not a theater company, because we want to be open to we created um we presented a thing called the Dramatist Live, which was like a magazine. It was like a, yes. a seeing a, a magazine on stage. It was basically like people talking about there's kind of almost different articles <laughs> that happened over the course of an hour. And so like that's not a, a traditional theater thing, but we wanted to stay open to again that project because of Tracy's connections fell into our lap. And so that's I mean it's less that we're kind of anticipating what's next. It was more like here's been our history, so it probably will keep happening. So we just want to say that we're open to it and excited by it. Yeah, I, I think part of that too has to be accepting your own fallibility, I guess, as an organization, and that you you have these bold, ambitious, great, uh, well-meaning <laughs> intentions, but that that a certain point that you may still kind of not not hit the the nail on the head with it. So, I mean, is that something that you guys are anticipating dealing with? Or? I mean, so far, knock on something, we've, we've mostly done okay with that. We definitely had a little bit of a strike in our first sec- section of our symposium with a play that was written by a, a white female author and had gotten through our, our whole contest progress process, but that it was written about the border town in Mexico and Latino and all of our actors across the board in the in the talk back in front of the audience were like, yeah, it was very clear this was written by a white woman. It was not, you know, in you know, it was not our voice and our voice is the one that should be telling these stories. And we were like, wow, okay, we just learned Good something. Know. You know? <laughs> so and and you know, we definitely had a moment in our first panel discussion at our Bechtel Fest this this uh, year where there was a little bit of moment of contention and, and tension and Tracy and I were the moderators and we realized like okay we probably should not be moderating these discussions because we're not trained in it and we didn't jump in right away to diffuse the tension so it just continued for a few days and weeks um, and I know that it may still be talked about and we're still processing it and we are I don't want to say sad that it happened because, but I mean, we're sad that feelings were hurt and we think that, you know, but a learning came out of it. And I think that's, what's important too, is that we are learning. We had a meaningful discussion about the events that happened. And I think we are growing from each of it. We're, you know, as you guys said, Oh, we should be moderators. Oh, right. Okay. Now we know. Now we know. (laughs) And I know someone who's going to be a moderate, you know, it's okay. It doesn't feel detrimental. We're allowed, we're human. Mm -hmm. We're allowed to make mistakes as long. I feel like as long as we discuss and grow from that, which I feel like we're doing. Yeah. I, I think you look at Hollywood in some ways and you're like, okay, how many actors have, you know, gone to rehab or like, you know, made mistakes or whatever, and, and people welcome them back because they feel in some ways they're more human. And the the first time that you think that you're infallible and that you not aren't going to make mistakes is when you're going to fall and, you know, hit your face in a glass window and crack your nose or something. It's less likely to have someone to pull you up as well. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There's arrogant pride goeth before a fall, right? <laughs> we don't uh, claim to be perfect. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That should be a new slogan. Yes. Sure. yes. So before we kind of wrap up, there's some questions I want to say from a solely like pragmatic angle. It seems like you guys 
have done a lot to kind of make sure that you know you are treating this as a business still as well and that you are making these financial inlays with the, with the community and stuff like that like the first event you did was a symposium it wasn't even necessarily a show it was a symposium and you guys have been well, doing the did, gala we did do a full as part of that right yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. So we closed with a world premiere production okay. of a new play and you did the snippets and stuff as well and yeah. I, I guess I just mean that I think that it would be a lot of people's first instinct when they're putting in a, a situation like this to jump right into that I guess and, and maybe not consider the other side of it so I'd just love to you guys to talk about your approach on that and for um, just people who who would be interested in doing something like this how do you how do you make those um, decisions and how do you organize something like that well when it comes to finances I'm conservative I do not want to spend money I do not have and so um, we literally but we also are very insistent that um, there's this perception and it's the name of your podcast that artists deserve to be starving and we very much believe that artists deserve to be paid um, especially because a lot of us went to school for this have been paid for it for decades and so we deserve to be compensated for our work so we look at what money we have try to raise more and then say this is our budget and we're not spending more but we do have this money in the bank and we're going to spend it. I know that theater companies often have operated on the, well, once we sell tickets, we'll be able to pay. It's like, no, we've, we, are, we are definitely raising money, writing for grants. You know, at this point, we're not going to be, we're, we're not um, promising funds that we don't have. So I think that fiscal responsibility, and that's one of the things that it's, on all the grant paperwork that we're filing for is like we're looking for companies with fiscal responsibility well that's been us from the beginning because we have not every penny that we promise is something that we already have in our bank so and I think something that you know we don't talk about a lot is that we are constantly looking at grants and aware of the grant cycle and writing and applying for grants you know we have a handful of people that are always on the lookout and always working on that and it's always uh, an important part of what we're doing at all times. Yeah, we felt like we don't want to be another community theater that doesn't pay people, so it's important for us to pay people, and in order to do that, we need money. And in order to get money, we have to be looking for money. So it's definitely, as Jamie was saying, an ongoing thing. We have a, great, a couple of women who are you know, doing amazing work for that, and um, yeah, we're just trying our best to... And then we wait this for the Bechdel Fest. We weren't sure until... I think it was August, how, what our funding was for September. So we were kind of going, well, if we get this grant, we're going to do this much programming. If we don't, we're going to do this much programming. You know, we're, we're tailoring what our programming is to what our financial needs are, which is why we have not done a full production again since 2015. We're, we're aiming towards one December 2018. It will be our first full three-week three run, and we're actively fundraising and grant writing for it so that we, it can be fully produced because that's like 30 grand. <laughs> Yes, which I know you're going to be announcing next month, potentially, correct? Yes, yes. yes we will be announcing that title at our gala. We've secured the rights. We're in talks with Tuffy Center for the Arts, which is our um, amazing producing partner in terms of, you know, how the financing for it is going to break down. But, but yeah, we'll be able to announce that title at our gala. So exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm kind of really excited to hear you guys talk about that as a kind of job providers because uh, it's something that gets brought up a lot on this podcast is the idea of kind of the self-worth of an artist and mm-hmm. how this is one of those career fields where we're willing to do it without getting paid and people definitely take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. So I <laughs> I guess I just say I'm glad to hear you say that. And um, is that something that has always been um, a focus of yours? Like going into this, that was part of the kind of bottom lines that was going to happen? Yeah, so 
It's been a learning curve for me in this market because coming from New York City, uh, there's a thing called the showcase code. I'm a union performer, and in the showcase code means that you can perform, you can get paid $75 to do three weeks of a run of a show, and the idea is so that you can have your work seen because... Again, New York is hard. It's a hard market to break through. And it's one of those things, if you have an agent, then they're going to be submitting you for big stuff. But you need to be in something to get an agent. But you need an agent to be in something. So it's one of those catch-22s. So people create these showcase opportunities in order to showcase their work and have people see them. So when I first was looking at the market here myself... I did a couple of community theater shows and and the perception here is as a union member, oh, well, we don't pay union people, so you're going to donate back your salary. We're going to put you on a union contract, but we're going you have to donate it back to the theater. As and and here you get a tax write-off. Yay you. And the truth is taxes come out, so I end up in the red. So I did that a couple times thinking of it as a showcase um, as like, okay, here's how people are going to get to know me and get to know my work. And then I kind of looked around and went Oh my goodness, this is why, as you said, nobody here is getting paid because everybody thinks of like, oh, I just need to do a show and I just need to get seen and I just, so I realized like I was contributing to the problem and I stopped. And so th- from the beginning, Tracy and I, it was one of the things that we discussed. Of we are we are definitely trying to, in some ways, educate artists. You deserve to be paid, even if it's $75 for a reading. You've done, we're not paying you even minimum wage because you're rehearsing for eight hours, but at least we're giving you a little bit above gas money. Yeah. And we're teaching you that your time is valuable, your craft is valuable, your talent is valuable. And... You may have to wait longer between jobs, but ultimately you deserve it. And so hopefully we can train the community to start thinking that way. <laughs> yes, all of that. <laughs> well, I'm sure you've had those experiences as an actress as well, oh, right? Oh gosh, that's, that's, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. And and again, you're like, oh yeah, I'll do it. It's important work, blah, blah, blah. And then you're like, this was not worth my time. Yeah. Yeah, and ultimately, the thing is, I don't want to say that it's bad to not work for for pay, because for a lot of people here, it cannot be your profession. Like, you cannot make your living as an actor here. Very, very, very few people do, and usually it's because they have a spouse who has a quote-unquote real job. So, the truth of the matter is, like, it's going to be supplemental. I made about a third of my income last year acting, but that's just because I work my ass off at it. I don't know if you love swearing on your podcast, (laughs) but also, um, you know, I'm a professional of 20 years experience. So like I I can do that, but, but I do think again, that's why the fact that we all kind of merge between these different theaters is confusing. I think that there's a absolutely a need for community theater. Community theater is an outlet for people to go and work and, you know, have the opportunities. People like me who are professionals should not be jumping in and taking the the, the opportunities away from people who don't want to get paid for it. Yeah. Like that, I should not be doing that. So I'm not anymore. And so, you know, but then people like me should require being paid. So you kind of have to decide where you're at. And, and everybody can do passion projects. Like, I don't have a problem with that. Like, that's not the point. I don't want to, I don't want to slam any artists and what their choices are. But the only way that we're going to establish a professional scene here is if we all sort of come together and say we're not going to take it anymore. I love that. And I wish I could talk to you guys for another three hours. But because uh, there's so much I didn't even go over that I wanted to. Um, no, I, I love it. Um, but <laughs> to kind of wrap up the last uh, couple of questions I'd like to ask. First off, is there, um, you guys can enter this individual if you want to or together uh, if uh, there's any other artists in town you want to give any special recognition to doesn't have to be in the theater community just artists in general no I mean we mentioned a few oh yeah yeah I have my little list well so I've sort of mentioned these semi-professional companies and I feel
feel like this list is, is a group of companies who are doing what I'm talking about, who are trying to put their money where their mouth is and start to pay artists and start to um, work towards this more professional work. AC Theatre Company is brand new on the scene, and they've also been great in terms of representation of, of female writers. Their board for a long time was two men and two women. Now I believe it's two men and one woman, but but they're, they're very much working in gender parity, have an eye towards it, which I love. Stray Cat Theatre is super established, 17 years, and again, they, they work with very diverse voices. Black Theatre Troupe clearly has their population that they represent, but again, they're working at that level of hiring union people sometimes, paying people, you know, doing great work. Southwest Shakespeare has stepped away from union the last couple of years, but once again, their work is solid and they pay people and they're artistically sound. iTheater Collaborative is one of my theater homes and I adore them. And again, the work that they do is wonderful. They're a gender, you know, even board because you've got Chris and Rosie and she's uh, incredible. And they do a lot of work by women. I did a, a Lynn Nottage play with them a couple of years ago that was stunning. And I love the work that they do. Also, we have these two musicians that we've started working with, Marilyn De Silva and Sarah Off, called Tandem Duo, tandemduomusic.com, and they are a violinist and marimba player. They play, they're incredible. They are collaborating with us on our um, reading in March, but they um, play out in the valley, and they're very much aware of trying to get female composers represented, which is a whole nother mm-hmm. aspect we have not even discussed, but they're wonderful people to look up. And then... I also wanted to to talk about Ralph Remington, who's a new sort of new face in town as of about a year and a half ago. Um, He's the new artistic director at the Tempe Center for the Arts, who have been an amazing partner for us. And he is going to be programming starting in 2018-19 seasons that they are going to be producing in addition to, um, you know, bringing in other acts. So he is looking absolutely to be representative in terms of gender, but also in terms of race and different diversity, different underrepresented voices. And so definitely keep your eye out for Temporary Center for the Arts. And then we've also had a great collaboration with the Care Cultural Center. Tracy Mason's the artistic director there, and they do a varied programming bouquet. <laughs> um, and we're doing a reading series there, Monday nights, once a month. Our February reading is, I believe, February 19th. And and yeah, you can look on our website for that. But anyway, Care Cultural Center is doing some really interesting work and they're ASUKERR.com. Yeah. And I just wanted to throw in a couple others. You know, we've collaborated with Will and he's given his insight and experience in networking. Um, our website is up and running thanks to David Dickinson. Oh who has been amazing. And not only did he get it up and running, but he trained, what, like four or five of us on how to do the changes here on out. Yeah, and he also helps maintain it. If we're not available to do it, he'll often jump in and help. He's just been... Uh, I can't even say how astounding how and how professional he's made us look because yeah. <laughs> the little website I put together did not look like that. <laughs> I think that was quite a list. Yeah. Um, but actually, <laughs> our, our website is bridgeinit, B-R-I-D-G-E-I-N-I-T dot org. And um, check us out. <laughs> yes, yeah, on that. Any other kind of personal projects you want to plug? Any other websites uh, for you personally? I know you mentioned the, the, the oh, February yeah. one. You know, our, our gala. Yeah. And oh, speaking of our gala, though so I chair the gala the gala I never I always say a different whatever <laughs> there we go but uh, Jody Weiss helps with that and she is phenomenal so there's a shout out to Jody for helping us make make it a wonderful night yeah so uh, our this will be our second one and what we intend to do is have a bunch of theater artists 
doing some work by some local playwrights, by some, you know, more national playwrights. So we'll be doing some scenes, some short plays. So there's going to be a lot of work actively to see. We also have, we're going to have a silent auction, which is amazing. The things that have been donated so far are just blowing my mind. It's super exciting. Everything from like a wine flight that will be happening in your own living room to tickets to the zoo to, I mean, it's the ballet where it's amazing. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's, and we'll have, uh, it's going to be fully catered and we'll have, you know, of course, some wine. And it's going to be at the Child's Play Campus in Tempe on February 24th, 7 p.m. No, 6 p.m. Do we say 6 p.m.? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So look at our website. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The last thing I'd like to ask um, is if you encountered somebody who was trying to, you know, go down the same path you guys did, what was one piece of advice you'd want to give them? You're kind of only as strong as your team. Know that it's not easy. There are no shortcuts. And if it's what you really want, it's going to be really rewarding in the end. All right. Those are both solid pieces of advice, guys. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. <laughs> Special thanks to Nick Machete for writing our theme music and Taylor Machete for all of her support. If you are enjoying the podcast so far, don't forget to follow us and leave nice ratings on Facebook, Twitter, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Pinecast.co. And if you or someone you know is pursuing something artistic in the Phoenix area and you'd like to be on the podcast, write to me at starvingartistphx at gmail.com.